Maths Drive presents. Oh, got to get ready. Laptop. Plant. That looks nice there. Ooh, cookies. Yum. Notebook. Microphone. Webcam. And coffee, of course. A video podcast where deaf, hard of hearing, and disabled creatives and their allies chat about experiences, best practice, and the future of the arts. The Green Room. Welcome to The Green Room, a weekly video podcast produced by Strive Collective, which is a new collaboration between theatre and production companies, Hot Coals Productions, and the DH Ensemble. Over 12 weeks, we are going to be chatting to some of the most exciting, deaf, hard of hearing, disabled and neurodiverse artists and their industry allies from the UK and internationally. We'll be publishing an interview every Thursday at half past seven. So that's going to go out on our YouTube channel and on the Strive website, and it will stay up there so you can watch it anytime after that. We're also going to be releasing this as an audio podcast, and the details about how to find that will be on the Strive website. So in these interviews, we're going to be celebrating best practice, spotlighting unsung heroes, and hopefully encouraging people who are watching and listening to keep creative access and diversity front and center as we move forward. Um, if you want to join in the conversation with us, we have a hashtag, of course. It is hashtag the green room underscore UK. So that's hashtag the green room underscore UK. So you can use that on any social media channel and pop your thoughts and feelings and questions on there. And we'll be keeping an eye on it so we can keep the conversation going. And of course, if you're watching this on YouTube, you can comment down below. So I am Erin Hutching. I am one of the lead artists of the DH Ensemble Theatre Company. I'm a performer and a creative producer for the company. I'm also a freelance actor and a sign language interpreter. And I'm going to describe myself for people who will need the audio description. So I am tall, like five foot nine, white woman with long, like probably golden, dark blonde hair. Used to be blonder, but you know, lockdown. I'm wearing a emerald green top that's kind of like fitted, like a posh t-shirt. And behind me, I've got a grey well, it looks like a wall, but it's actually one of those pop-up screens. So I use it for like my self-tapes and uh, interpreting and all that. So it's very professional. So today, we are going to be chatting with the wonderful Kelsey Acton. Kelsey, would you mind describing yourself for our audience and then just telling us briefly a little bit about who you are and what you do? Thanks. Um, so, hi, I'm Kelsey. I'm a white woman with um, pandemic length, so long curly, uh, br dark brown hair. I've got some clear glasses on and I'm wearing a dark green jumper over a white and blue top. Um, behind me is a white wall and because um, I'm not quite as professional as Erin, there's a little sliver of my bed right behind me. Um, so, um, I'm originally, um, from Treaty 6 territory in Canada, um, hence the accent, but I live and work in London. Um, I do access, so I'm currently the inclusive practice manager at Battersea Arts Centre. I do freelance access work 
currently for the lovely hot coals. And um, I'm also a dancer and choreographer, although that has been like very much on pause during the pandemic. Thank you. Well, we're so excited that you're here with us today, and I'm really keen to get talking about all of those things that you've mentioned. Uh, but before we start doing that, I should say that we've got two lovely British Sign Language interpreters with us on the screen, and I'm just going to ask them to um, describe themselves for people who are accessing this um, audibly. So the first one is Anna, and she is going to be signing for me today. Hello everyone, uh, my name is Anna. My sign name is, if you pretend you're rolling up your sleeves one arm at a time. I'm not as tall as Erin. <laughs> I have longish brown hair and I have a bright green, bright green background. Lovely, thank you so much. And Natasha is our other interpreter who'll be signing for Kelsey. Hi, my name's Natasha. It's my sign name, Natasha, which is the sign for water going down the face. Um, I'm five foot four in height. I've got dark brown hair, kind of below the shoulders. Um, I've got a green top on, and behind me is a door. And similar to Kelsey, you can see a bed in the background that's bright orange. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Natasha. That's a great reminder, actually. So my sign name is uh, the sign for lipstick, which I am wearing today for all of you. Kelsey, do you have a sign name? Um, I do. Uh, because I come from Canada, it's an ASL. Um, so you make the ASL sign for K's with both your hands. Uh, so you connect up to sort of the bottom pad of your third finger. And then you make the ASL sign for knitting, which is the kind of hands are kind of horizontal and you sort of weave them together. Oh, and cool. that's my sign name. That's lovely. Great. So, Kelsey, um, you mentioned that you've done a lot of dancing and choreography work and I'm really intrigued about hearing a bit more obviously you said it's on pause which is the case for most of us artists through the pandemic uh, but I would love to know a bit more about that work and in particular like anything that you are really most proud of in your dancing and choreography work yeah um I worked really closely for over a decade almost a decade, I think, um, with the books in Edmonton. So the piece I'm still to this day super proud of, um, and I think really encapsulates how I love to work um, on dance, is a piece called Help. Um, it was danced by three Jenny, dancers, Jenny Hilliard, um, Haley Borgstrom, and Iris Dykes. Um, so, integrated dance, but all of those dancers are older, Iris uses a power chair, or have bodies that don't fit into normative understandings of dance. And we co-created the dance based on all the dancers' experiences of health and how complicated health can be for mm -hmm. disabled folks and 
everyone really. Um, and then the soundtrack is this beautiful score, um, but the composer wove through these sound res recordings of the dancers telling stories about help through the piece. Um, and yeah, and we put creative captioning on that, although I think I've learned a lot about creative captioning since then. So there's things I would do differently now. Um, but for me, I love working with dancers um, quite intensely to pull out like their favorite way to move. And I love creating work that is collaborative and um, sometimes provocative. I've had people's responses to that piece have ranged everywhere from people yelling at me and talkbacks um, because they were very upset at the idea that perhaps disabled people did not want help um, or at least not help they had, you know, explicitly consented to, to people saying, oh, this piece needs to go to like occupational and medical schools because this, this is how we need to be thinking about interacting um, with folks. Yeah. That sounds amazing. I, I think, well, there are a lot of interesting things about what you just said, but one thing that I'd like to pick up on is just this idea that we're always learning and that, you know, you said you've learned a lot about creative captions since that time. And I think what's so important uh, and one of the things we're trying to do with the green room is just to encourage people to, uh, to have a go at access. And it's of course important to try and meet everybody's access needs as, as well as you can, but it is all a learning process and we will learn and we will improve over time. So, you know, it's better to, to try and do it than just to not do it at all because you think you can't do it perfectly. I, well, I think anyway, I, I wonder if you agree with that. <laughs> um, very strongly and also coming from a city where there wasn't a tremendous amount of disability culture and disability arts to, um, I guess, like learn from, I was watching YouTube videos um, of Grey Eye and of Access Dance in the States. And I think there was a lot of fun and should be a lot of fun in some ways to being like, oh, I'm really interested in this thing and I'm just going to try it. Maybe people will be a little bit upset because I messed it up somehow, but I will learn from people being upset and make it better next time. Yeah. Mm. I was also really interested in what you said about how some of the responses were about going into hospitals and medical environments. And, you know, there is such a, um, a, a difference in understanding between how we understand disability and deafness in the arts and the medical understanding of it. And that sort of made me think about um, what I, one of your papers that I read. Uh, so you've got for the audience so uh, Kelsey has a PhD and her PhD is I'm reading from over here you can see focused on accessibility of timing in disability dance rehearsals and one of the papers that I read that I found really fascinating talked about the difference in ethics between university research expectations and the ethical expectations of the disability arts community that specifically the one that you were part of at the time um, and 
that's you know this idea of the difference between the medical understanding of something and the arts understanding and then also the university understanding we've got all these competing uh demands and regulations i suppose in society i was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what those competing ethical demands were between the re university research and the disability arts community you, you were working with and how you um kind of made that work for you how you tried to meet both of them yeah so for my dissertation work i used um a research methodology called participatory arts-based research um and the participatory part of that means that the community should drive the research that researchers shouldn't be setting research questions and research methods in isolation. Instead, we need to involve communities so that research is accountable to communities. Um, which I think worked generally, but also there's this whole other process of research ethics approval that you need to go through to do research. And this isn't a bad thing, research ethics or for a very good reason. Um, but things like um, we got to the end of the process. Um, so we'd done all rehearsals. Um, we had most of the data. And originally I had suggested that we would do a focus group to sort of like reflect on everything that had happened. Um, because of the process of like candidacy and approval, um, we were at the end of June and all the dancers were sort of like, well, we're going on vacation. You should just send those focus group uh, questions as an email and we'll email you back the answers, which is great. But then I had to go back to the research ethics board to ask for an amendment to allow me to email out the focus group questions. And I had dancers emailing me being like, you said you were going to send these things out. What happened? Um, what happened was I had to wait six weeks for the research ethics board to say yes. So I think it's, it's a really interesting type of research ethics, the board being under, understanding that ethics are done separately at a distance, because for the dancers, the dancers researchers, they were emailing me saying, what's going on? We've told you what we want to do. Why haven't you done this? So there's a clash between the ethics of the dancer researchers who understand the authority as being with them and with the community and with the research board, which understands um, the authority of the ethics living with them. That's so interesting because it does feel to me a little bit similar to the to that medical uh, model that we that I mentioned. Uh, that that idea that you know, well, who's in charge of it really? And and of course, the community and the person with the lived experience should be the one that's that's leading and fully involved. But yeah, that that's really fascinating. So I know that you also do some directing work and a production that I'm particularly interested in is one from, I think it's 2019, called Songs My Mother Never Sung Me, which as I understand it, is a bilingual opera 
in English and American Sign Language. And it's about a hearing child and their relationship with their deaf mother. And as a hearing person who has deaf family and, uh, you know, an artist who's part of a company making work for deaf and hearing audiences, that immediately stuck out to me as something that I was really interested in. And I was like, this looks amazing. I wish I could see it. Um, so I would love to hear a bit about that. How did you get involved? Had you worked with deaf artists before? Um, and what was the experience like for you? The experience was incredible. It's like one of my favorite shows I've ever had the pleasure of working on. Um, I got involved because I had reached out to um, Concrete Theater and its artistic director, Mayako Uchi, about mentorship. I was really interested in thinking about children's theater and theater for young people, which concrete specializes in um theater for young people that's like very socially engaged um and i had known this show existed um edmonton is home to sound off which is canada's deaf theater festival so it had had um a sort of like initial showing a couple years previous but had sold out and I hadn't gone to see it. Mm. Um, and Mieko said, well, I know the show you should work on. Um, we're, we're doing a full production of songs. Um, so it was pretty incredible. I had had the pleasure of working with deaf artists before. Um, the company I worked with, Cripsy, had been involved along with like a lot of other folks and um, in starting to introduce um, interpreted theater and interpreted performance to Edmonton. So I'd worked with our deaf consultant, um, Connor Uzwenko Martin. Um, sorry for the long, long names. Um, before, um, because he had come in as a deaf consultant on to check the interpretation for dance performances we had done. Um, but yeah, it was really, really incredible. Um, in part because I was able to get a grant that paid for um, about eight months of ASL um, classes before I went into rehearsals. Not that I'm fluent, but it was, really great to be immersed into the language beforehand and then as a dance artist i think there's a tolerance for a lot of different things happening on stage and having really different points of focus and i think the thing that like shifted dramatically for me was so much of learning about directing on songs was watching Miyako and Carolyn, the co-director on that project, and Connor work on how do we clarify the focus um, mm -hmm. on this production and how do we make it absolutely crystal clear where everyone should be looking at every moment so the purity of the language comes through. Um, so I learned so, so much from that production. 
I, I feel like sometimes when you generally, when people talk about access, it can feel a little bit clinical. It's you know, this idea of access and something that you need to add. But for me, your description just now of how you had to really clarify the, the show and where people should be looking feels like a very dramaturgical thing. And actually, in my experience of working in what people might call accessible theater, you have to be so sure of what your story is and the points of view that you're putting across and thinking about what each individual audience member's experience might be like, because each person might have their own journey, but it may not, it'll be equal, hopefully, but it may not be the same journey. And one of the things that I was really intrigued by with reading about songs was the use of different technology. So there was projections, a lot of uh, vibrations and that it's called, is it called vibro tactile technology? That's the one where people yeah. like, sometimes they wear it, don't they? And it vibrates. And I think in, in songs, it was under the seats, was it? So they, they would shake. Um, what was the response like from the deaf audience to using those multiple ways of trying to represent sound and storytelling? So people were very excited. Um, it's interesting because I often have hesitancy about technological solutions for access. Um, I think, for example, um, lots of people really want to believe that um, speech to text is going to like solve all the access uh, for everyone, but it doesn't and won't in our lifetime, quite honestly. Um, so we had a hearing sound designer and I was sort of like, are we just, I hope we're not just making the assumption that people are going to love this, but it's actually just this weird technological thing that people um, don't love. And I think, sorry, I'm rambling, but I'm going to ramble for a moment. I think the Thank thing you. that, um, yeah, made me dampen that hesitation is um, the work of Dave Bobier, um, who's, I believe he identifies as hard of hearing artist and the Viber Fusion Lab out in Ontario. And he, I know he's come over here and um, done a bunch of work with um, deaf artists here incorporating um, yeah, like the vibration packs. Um, but yeah, people loved the vibrating seats. Um, there was like hits and misses. We tried to rig up um, a vibration pack for Liz Morris, who is a very incredible um, deaf actor who was playing mom in the production and realized eventually that this thing was like heavy, bulky. It takes a lot of electricity to generate vibration. So even if Liz could feel um, like the vibration of the beat of the song, it wasn't the most effective way. What we actually needed to do was like arrange the stage picture. So people were cueing off of breath and visually and keeping together that way instead of trying to look for a technological solution there. Um, but yeah, the audience was like very into the vibrating seats. 
<laughs> that's really cool and it I think it's so true isn't it that technology can bring so much to our lives and in terms of theatre we borrow from every different uh you know field and and we we bring a lot into the theatre but sometimes just the good old like let's use our bodies and our breath is the best solution <laughs> um something that I that struck me when reading about that is um and something that the DH Ensemble did a show called People of the Eye a few years ago and we used a lot of projection and sound and people in the audience really loved it but some people found it quite overwhelming because we were really trying to make the experience really immersive and we were trying to represent sound in lots of different ways. I wondered whether you had any feedback from audiences who had other disabilities or were neurodiverse that the use of all of those multi-sensory um, ways of telling a story was a bit overwhelming or inaccessible to them? So, um, as someone with sound sensitivity, um, I found the tech rehearsal quite brutal, um, especially because when you're like boosting the bass on um, all of the music and doing that repeatedly um, to find the sound level, it's a lot. I also feel like I had earplugs. It was really miserable for a day. I hung in there. Um, because I think that show is very much intended for both deaf and hearing audiences, but there's the way, there's a way where the intended audience at the very, very core is deaf folks. Um, there's points in the show where, um, mum signs and there's no translation, um, so unless you speak ASL, you can't get access to the full show. So in some ways, as hearing a neurodivergent person, I think my access to that show is way less important than the access of all the deaf audience. And that wouldn't be my answer for every show, but for that show, it absolutely is. Thank you. I, I think sometimes that is something that artists struggle with, is the idea of trying to make work accessible for a diverse audience and whether or not the uh, certain forms uh, or artistic choices or forms of access you choose for one audience may actually be excluding of another audience. And, you know, whether sometimes you have to make a decision who the show is for primarily and then just make sure that you're advising people of the nature of the show so that they can make their own decision about whether to, to watch it. Um, I mean, that probably, I guess, ties a little bit into your current role, which is at Battersea Arts Centre, or one of, I know you're freelance as well, so one of your current roles. Um, so Battersea Arts Centre, um, if anybody's watching who isn't from the UK, is a is pretty well known as the world's first relaxed venue. Uh, and in, I might get this wrong, so correct me if you probably have a much better explanation than I do. But in terms of shows being relaxed, generally it means that people can make sound if they need to. They can leave the theatre and come back at any point. Sometimes maybe there's a room 
that they can relax in outside of the theater space that is quiet. Uh, there might be some adjustments to the sound and lighting during the show. Is that sort of covering a lot of what you would consider a relaxed show to be? Yeah, so I think, sorry, I get very excited about this question. Good, <laughs> good. Uh, so I think there are a lot of nuances to what a relaxed performance can be. Um, at BAC, we use Jess Tom's and Tourette's Heroes work on relaxed performance. Um, so we have try and have really good pre-show information so people can decide whether or not they want to. Um, we try and make sure that um, staff like everyone involved is really well trained and knows what to expect from a relaxed performance um, and has an inclusive attitude. There's a pre-show announcement explaining that you can move, you can make noise, um, you can come and go as you need to. And BAC has this very beautiful, dedicated chill out space in the building. We don't necessarily ask for sensory adjustments because um, that's like a pretty big ask of a lot of artists who come into the building. But we do try and make sure that just like we have BSL interpretation shows and audio described shows that we do have some sensory adapted performances. Although I always like to say that this is a little bit easier over internet because as long as you're not putting in strobe lights or something silly like I can turn down the volume on <laughs> the performance if I really want to yeah so actually in some ways this new sort of digital theater uh revolution that's taking place is is, is more accessible in lots of ways isn't it because it's accessible for people who may not be able to travel to the theater who have childcare responsibilities and you can also adjust your own settings on your computer <laughs> I still miss going to the theater though oh, one day um so your your title or your job role is inclusive practice manager so what does that mean what do you do um a whole lot so essentially I work across the entire organization to try and make sure that everything BAC does is as accessible as possible. Um, so this is like a small chunk of the relaxed venue methodology that Jess developed at BAC. Um, but essentially the idea is that the social model of disability is embedded through every part of the organization. So some days see me working with comms, some days with the producers, um, Right now, I spend a lot of time talking to facilities people, trying to figure out where I can go ask money. Um, sorry, what I can go ask for money for to, you know, like make the building just a, the physical building just a little bit more accessible. So it's really diverse, fun. It does sound really fun. Like you get an insight into the way of working of every different part of the organization as well as being able to share with them your expertise about access and trying to find a solution, which I'm sure is challenging sometimes, but also very exciting. I um, 
So this is more of a personal question, <laughs> but I'm really intrigued about why it seems like you had a lot of really exciting things going on in Canada. Uh, what made you want to move to the UK? Um, was the job really? Uh, I remember looking at it in disability arts online and thinking, ha ha ha, my dream job. So I applied and I got an interview and I was so excited and so proud. I got the interview and then I got a second interview. Um, and I promptly freaked out about meeting just Tom. Um, <laughs> together during the interview and then was like oh gosh I guess I should apply for my British passport um my mother was born in Sheffield but came over to Canada quite young so I'd never actually thought about the fact that I was that I'm a British citizen until suddenly I was like oh I could move to London and do access work um, so yeah, that was what prompted everything. So what has your, um, experience been like if, like coming to the UK, coming to London and having that part of your identity that it sounds like you hadn't really sort of thought about or explored deeply before and coming here and experiencing the, the way of life in London and thinking to yourself, oh, I'm actually part British, like I'm a British citizen. What, what was that like? Um, I think like wonderful and strange and complicated. Um, so like there's some things I understand. I grew up eating a lot of Yorkshire pudding. <laughs> I don't know what snacks eggs are and I'm very scared to try them. Um, I don't know what these things are. Um, I think there's also really interesting questions for me. It's a few years ago, Canada went through the reconciliation process um, with to address like the harm of the residential schools and the cultural genocide against the Indigenous of Canada. I feel like. When I was in Treaty 6 territory and like understanding myself as someone who was there because of treaties made um, and treaties broken and having that, a very particular relationship to like the land and the people um, who it belongs to. And then coming here, so I'm no longer living on stolen land. But also, I still have a lot of questions about, I guess, what is my relationship to colonialism? What are my ethical relationships um, as someone who benefits from, I guess, like the tremendous violence of the British Empire? Sorry, this got very dark, but this is, yeah, one of the things I've been thinking about for the last year as I've been here. I can, yeah, absolutely relate to that. Um, I'm from New Zealand, as as you know, um, and my mother is Irish. So that's how I live here. I've got an Irish passport. Um, but that what you said really struck a chord with me, because that's something that I've thought about a lot since I moved over to the UK is um, 
yeah, is, is what it means to, uh, one of things that has really surprised me living here is that uh, I feel like I have a lot more education about colonial history than a lot of the British people that I meet. And I think that perhaps that's difference in education systems. I also grew up partly in Singapore, so we learned a little bit of different history there. But um, I think, you know, for me, education is so, is everything. And not having a full understanding of history is what can influence people's attitudes, I believe. So it, it is really interesting, as you say, living in a place where, uh, you know, historically, there has been such a strong impact on the place where you were born. Um, and I'm sure that there are a lot of people that would relate to that. It's interesting. That's not a question. That was just me talking. <laughs> Go ahead, Kelsey. It's interesting because it's also made me really aware of gaps in my knowledge of history. I think Canada being situated sort of like culturally and historically constantly between um, the UK and the States, I know a lot of um, English history. Um, I know a tremendous amount of American history, but it's often like world stage type histories. So coming here and realizing that I don't actually know the histories behind like the devolved nations. I don't, and I'm still like not totally unclear about the specifics of those relationships and the histories that inform them. And suddenly that feels more like something I need to be learning um, to be a part of the culture here. And yeah. So it's interesting to think about what you get living in a country that has close ties to England um, and what bits of history you don't get. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's there's so much to be said for who tells the stories and who writes the history books and who teaches the classes. And I think that's something that a lot of us have been reckoning with, particularly in the last year or two. Um, you know, I think a lot of people have been experiencing mental health challenges through lockdowns and that kind of thing. But on the flip side, I feel it's been an opportunity to have a little bit of time and space to maybe look into some of these things that we should all be thinking a bit more about and thinking a bit more critically about. So thank you for sharing that experience. Um, I wanted to just, before we finish up, give you the opportunity to talk a little bit more about um, any upcoming projects you've got, because I'm sure people are really interested in knowing about what you're doing. I know that you're working with the Critical Design Lab. Would you be able to tell us what that is and what the project is? Yeah. Um, so the Critical Design Lab is this really lovely group of folks, mostly academic, um, but also like artists and designers um, who are all like very brilliant. And sometimes I'm very worried um, <laughs> about how smart these people are and when I'm in the room with them. Um, but I think it's, we describe it as like a multi-institutional collaborative. So they're folks all, from all over the world. Um, here there's in London, there's me and Louise Hickman, who does quite amazing work around um, AI and um, actually captioning 
and then folks from Canada and from the States. So the project that's upcoming that I'll be doing a little bit about is called Remote Access, and it's going to be an archive of um, disabled people's online responses and engagements um, to the pandemic. So this grew out of this like really joyous um, dance party that one of the critical design lab members, Kevin Gotkin, organized called Remote Access. Um, and Kevin was interested in like recreating nightlife over Zoom. Um, but with, because it's all about access, um, with folks describing the music that was playing um, and with like beautiful audio described performances over Zoom. Um, yeah, so I'm really excited to help document and think a little bit more about like, as much as Zoom is sometimes terrible, all the really interesting ways that disabled folks have used it over the past few months to connect and sometimes party. <laughs> as we all should. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I suppose that some of the people watching this might be artists in their own right and uh, theatre makers who are interested in bringing access into their work. Um, and sometimes that can be intimidating, as we said earlier, the fear of getting it wrong or not being able to do it perfectly. I wondered if you had any advice for people who would like to take those first steps into making their work accessible, given your experience um, across a very wide range of uh, accessible theatre as a maker, as a, a inclusive practice manager, uh, researcher. Yeah, what would you recommend people do as the sort of first couple of steps? So I think you want to find people. Um, I think here in London, there are tons of really, really brilliant people working really hard to think about the kinds of access they're specifically interested in and passionate about. And those people will be able to help you. I think the other thing for me, especially starting in Edmonton, where there weren't any models, the internet is really helpful. Um, Twitter will tell you a lot of things. <laughs> I, I like to joke that 90% of what I do, you can probably find on Twitter if you're willing to work <laughs> and look for it. Um, but people like Unlimited and Shape publish brilliant guides um, if you have to strike out on your own. And then finally, I think the thing I always think about access is it's not about doing it right. Um, because I think we need best practices to give us a starting place. Um, but the complexities of access means that those best practices don't work for everyone. Um, so I think the best way to think about doing access is you're doing it so you can get in relationship with people and people that maybe your art couldn't reach before. So 
yeah. And then once you're in relationship, people will tell you how to do it better. And it's also going to be more important to do it better because you'll know these people and want them to see your art and be in your um, audiences. Yeah. yeah. That's so true. I, that my access point to accessible theatre was having a deaf sister and wanting her to be able to see my work. And sometimes it's that personal connection that can be the most motivating. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're running out of time, but we like to end these interviews with some quick fire questions. So these are very random. Some of them won't have anything to do with uh, theatre or performance, but just uh, instinctively answer with a, whichever one feels right to you. Okay. TV or film? TV. Cats or dogs? <laughs> cats or dogs? Always. Yeah. <laughs> Team cat. cat. Always. <laughs> Beach or mountains? Beach. Tea or coffee? Coffee. I'm very North American in that regard. <sighs> and costumes or set? Costumes. Yeah, I think I'd have to agree with that too. And just to close up, would you be able to tell us about your favorite green room, if you have one? So, I think I actually want to shout out BAC's chill out space. Um, I haven't seen it in a long time and I really miss it. It's this really incredible, beautiful space designed by Rhiannon Armstrong. Um, there's controllable lights, there's weighted blankets, everything's soft. Um, and it's just like the best room. That sounds amazing. Oh, that's what I need right now. I've been trying to do a lot of yoga recently and I just, my favorite bit is just at the end when they say, okay, just lie down in Shavasana and put your blanket over you. <laughs> like, this is the bit, I'll just do this bit. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Kelsey. It's been so lovely to chat to you and thank you for your patience with, you know, a few of the internet connection issues we've had. So for our audiences watching or listening, you may have observed a little bit of connection issues. Unfortunately, that is the, the world we live in now with, um, discussing things remotely and working on Zoom and all of that kind of thing. So I'm sure you understand. Um, but it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. And Anna and Natasha, thank you so much for being part of the conversation with your wonderful interpretation. If uh, the audience watching or listening would like to get involved in the conversation, we do, as I said at the beginning, have a hashtag, hashtag the green room underscore UK. And you can use that on Twitter or any other social media to post your comments, your questions, and we'll be keeping an eye on that and responding. And we'll try and just really keep this conversation going. 
thank you so much and there'll be another video out next week at the same time on our YouTube channel or website with another very exciting guest. Thank you. Thank you. Guest, Kelsey Acton. Host, Erin Siobhan Hutching. Interpreters, Anna Kitson and Natasha Trantum. Music, Road Trips, Off Shane. The Green Room, a video podcast produced by Strive, a collective made up of the DH Ensemble and Hot Coals Productions. You can find all the videos and audio recordings of this series at www.strivecollective.org forward slash the hyphen green hyphen room. Twitter at Strive Collective with no E. Hashtag the green room underscore UK. Celebrating best practice, spotlighting unsung heroes, inspiring action. Logos for Strive, Hot Coals Productions and the DH Ensemble supported using public funding by Arts Council England.